In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents. Madam Speaker. Madam Vice President. You want to hang out with us? Get your vaccine. Vaccine, vaccine. And so I went to Human Resources. There's some things I just can't tell you uh, on air. The Betches Sub Podcast. A woman's problem, if you will. Hello, I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Brian Russell Smith. And this is the Betches Sub Podcast, where C SPAN needs the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. My U.S. news disclaimer is doing a lot of work today. Um, but luckily, I've brought in an expert who has a bit more range than us to talk about what is huge in the news today, which is obviously the chaos in Afghanistan. We've brought in somebody whose voice you'll probably recognize from Instagram, just as you would. Uh, I wrote that and I was like, Kim Kardashian and Moshe Wanunu, Instagram influencers. <laughs> Welcome so much, Moshe. Thank you so much for joining us i've never been introed in the same breath as kim kardashian <laughs> uh, so uh, it's great to be with you guys yeah i was like you've had like a long career in journalism i think but it's culminated into the point of you might you might know him from instagram there you go i'll take it <laughs> yeah but i mean you're on a mission kind of like we are to sort of like bring more news to instagram so just to start i mean i i rely on you and other journalists particularly when there's a lot of activity in the middle east so i was just kind of curious how you became so knowledgeable in this region um, it, it, I've always had an interest from childhood, um, in the news and in the region. My dad happens to be from Morocco, uh, immigrated to Israel. So I've always kind of been captivated by the region. Um, I grew up in the States, obviously, but in college, uh, I was actually a sophomore at GW in DC when 9-11 happened on wow. my first day of my internship on Capitol Hill. And afterwards I had a whole debate about whether I'd go work for the government, um, post 9-11 or go into journalism. Uh, went to the latter, but ultimately, because of what we were covering in Washington, Iraq, Afghanistan, still covering it 20 years later. I know. Uh, ha- had to become a quick study. Yeah. Talk about a full circle moment. I mean, truly. So I know the early 2000s were back. The worst I could imagine was low rise jeans. But turns out my imagination was quite an optimist because as of this weekend, the capital of Afghanistan is under Taliban control. Everybody is very worried and asking a lot of questions. So we kind of wanted to do a broad overview with you. So I'll go through some sort of general information. We're recording right now on Monday at about noon Eastern time. Things are are changing quickly as always. But the Taliban took over Afghanistan's capital city of Kabul over the weekend. The country and its government are effectively under Taliban control and President Ashraf Ghani has left the country with the Taliban in charge of the presidential palace. So today we're gonna talk about, as I said, what happened, how it happened, why it happened, what needs to happen now. We're going to cover as much of that as we can. So since 2001, four different administrations have poured billions of dollars into Afghanistan to build a modern military force of 300,000. Obviously, thousands of American servicemen and women lost their lives in this effort, as did tens of thousands of Afghani civilians. 
or fighters as well. Just last month, President Biden said with a lot of confidence that it was unlikely the Taliban would take over the country. He was dodging comparisons recently to a potential Saigon-like image when Americans had to evacuate thousands of American personnel and some refugees via helicopters on top of embassies and apartment buildings because there was no safe route to an airport. So obviously evocative of some of the stuff we are seeing. So Mosh, are we seeing what we're seeing this week because the Afghan military failed? And just more broadly, what factors led up to this moment? It's a very complicated question. I, and we might, I might take up your full uh, podcast with my answer, <laughs> uh, but I'll, I'll try to be brief. Okay. It's, um, a whole variety of factors brought us to this day. I think folks need to keep in mind that right now we're looking, you know, literally in a couple of weeks is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And what's remarkable is that the Taliban was in control of Kabul on 9-11 and the Taliban will again be in control of Kabul 20 years later um, on 9-11. And so um, what we saw over the course of the last 20 years, two Democratic presidents, two Republican presidents, was a mission that grew by the year. We went in there, if people will recall, because 9-11 happened. The Taliban was in control of Afghanistan. They had let uh, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda form bases there. That was where the uh, attack, 9-11, was basically formulated and where the folks were trained. We gave the Taliban a few weeks in the fall of 2001 to give up bin Laden. They did not. We went in there with the mission of getting bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. That then grew to let's also take out the Taliban. We took them out within a couple months out of Kabul, put in our own government. Let's grow a democratic state here in Afghanistan, help them write a constitution, help them build institutions, help build women's rights, help create NGOs, schools. That grows over time. The Taliban, though, always controls some territory. They never quite went away. Some escaped to Pakistan, which bin Laden did. We would find him 10 years later in 2011. And at the same time in 2002, if folks will recall, we decided at the U.S. to go to war with Iraq to build uh, to launch a war there. Well, that meant we were a bit distracted by what was going on in Afghanistan. And by the time we kind of are able to renew our attention to Afghanistan a couple of years later, the Taliban continues to uh, control territory. Um, there's an insurgency and we're now fighting an insurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so what you saw, that was the Bush administration. They couldn't get out. Obama comes in. He wants to get out. The military is like, we can't get out. There's yeah. an insurgency. The Taliban controls territory. And anyway, and so on and so forth. And so Obama ends up increasing us from 50,000 troops to 130,000 troops. We fight an insurgency there. He wants to get out by the end of 2016. Military is like, can't get out. Still yeah. fighting the Taliban. Trump tr comes in. I want to get out. Military is like, can't get out. Still fighting the Taliban. And so Th that's all important to know in terms of context Yeah, is we continue to need to support the fight. Why? Because we were training and building an Afghan military that could sort of fight the insurgents, but they were there for the money for the most part. These soldiers, we would pay them money. We'd pay the Afghan government money. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons you see this 300,000 figure of the Afghan military was 300,000 strong. The Taliban's only 75,000. How could this happen? Yeah. Well, some of the people didn't exist. Okay. <laughs> because, because the U.S. military, the U.S. was like, Afghan, how many soldiers do you have? And they're like, we have this many soldiers. And so we're like, okay, we'll pay you for this many soldiers. Well, there's a whole bunch of corruption happening. Mm -hmm. So you have all of that going on. And we build a military in Afghanistan that needs the U.S. They need our air support. They need our communication support. And they're like, these guys are never leaving. They never left Korea after Korean War. Then we're still in Japan and Germany after World War II, right? We, mm -hmm. The U.S. still has bases there. So Afghanistan's like, they're never leaving. 
they'll be around. Well, we actually left. And the Afghan military, for a whole variety of factors, from corruption to uh, needing the U.S. support, couldn't keep up the fight. Yeah, I mean, I think that I've seen people expecting a lot of the blame I've seen tossed around is more is less about should we have withdrawn and more about the pace and um, whether we could have. Was there a way to I mean, my question was, could a different type of withdrawal have set the Afghan military up more for, for success? But what you've just described, it sounds like it needed a lot more than a couple extra months. I mean, the bottom line is this. No matter who you speak to in the U.S. government, they will say that the Taliban taking Afghanistan over again was inevitable. The only question was how long? And you saw various estimates. Uh, well, you know, we think this government can survive for a year. We can think this government can survive for six months. That was six days ago. Mm -hmm. And so could this have been differently? Most certainly. You know, most recently, the Obama administration in 2009 tried to open up talks to the Taliban, knowing that inevitably we would have to coexist with the Taliban in some way. Those talks in earnest really start happening in 2018 under the Trump administration. They have direct talks with the Taliban. And there's basically a truce effectively between the U.S. and the Taliban where we're like, you don't shoot Americans. We don't shoot Taliban. OK, well, that then meant that the Taliban had time to kind of restore their strength and build up territory. Even as of Trump coming in five years ago, Taliban controlled 50 percent of the country. So it's not like we had full control of the country and they took the whole country in a day. They had most of the outskirts of the country in certain territory where people are, you know, pretty sympathetic to them. So what could have been done differently? Well, Trump basically signed a deal with the Taliban saying we're out by May 2000, May 2021. Biden comes in in January and looks at that agreement and is like, I don't want to rip up the agreement. I don't want to go back to war with Afghanistan. I want out of this place. Biden, people should recall, during the Obama administration, when he was vice president, said, let's get out of this place. It's a disaster. It's Vietnam. Biden's like, I'm finally president. I'm getting out of this place. Pentagon's like, as Pentagon's always said to presidents, maybe we should stick around. <laughs> maybe we should live troops on the ground. Biden's like, OK, I will push from May to August, but then August, I'm out. I'm out September 1. I want to be out by 9-11, the 20th anniversary. Yeah. Well, when Biden announces that in April, the Taliban begins their final offensive. Oh, they're going to be out by August. Let's start to take back the country. Um, and so what the military was then telling Biden was, maybe we should leave some troops on the ground. We built these really expensive multi-billion dollar air bases. Maybe we should keep a couple there. We're behind on visas, et cetera. And Biden didn't want to hear it. He's like, this is what you guys have done to my predecessors. Mm -hmm. I want mm -hmm. out no matter what. So playing Monday morning quarterback on this Monday morning, we could say, sure, maybe we should have left some troops there. And there'll be a, a whole, you know, a whole load of stories written about, you know, folks who are leaking now calling journalists like me mm -hmm. saying, let me tell you what memo I sent three weeks ago predicting yeah. this whole. OK, and so, sure, there were other avenues. Other folks will say fighting season, war season in Afghanistan, as it's been for 50 years, is from spring to September. Why didn't we get out in the winter when the Taliban would have had a much more difficult time moving around the country is something else you might hear. Interesting. We all know your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. Sometimes what starts as a bad hair day quickly turns into a bad everything else day. I'd never found beauty products that really understood my needs, but ever since I switched to custom hair and skin routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair and skin, yes 
but beyond that too. Since I started using Pros, I've noticed consistently healthy hair. Even with all I put it through with the heat tools and the hairsprays to get this pompadour sky high, it smells great, it looks fancy on the shelf, and I like that it has my name right on it. This formula is made for V. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. From millions of possible formulas, only one is uniquely yours or mine. And Pros isn't just better for you. It's better for the planet. They're a certified B Corp, cruelty-free, and the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. They even have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and adjusts my formula to keep up with the seasons and changes in my life. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription at pros.com slash feverdream. So get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash feverdream. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash feverdream. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. Whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of the things I like to buy on Etsy have little dachshunds on them or are four dachshunds. Dottie's got a whole litany of new sweaters and harnesses and all kinds of fun stuff that we get lots of compliments on when we're out on walks. A gifting moment is always just around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. As you're speaking of all this, there's been so, it's, uh, the scenes are quite bizarre because as dramatic and shocking as they are, there is an air of everyone just sort of being like, well, yeah, this is what was going to happen. I mean, there, there's there, everybody's nobody seems particularly surprised or shocked, maybe just by the urgency. So we've heard that since the drawdown earlier this year, that the U.S. needed to start evacuating people. It needed it had a whole range of people who it needed to evacuate from journalists and translators and other vulnerable Afghan nationals who worked with us over the past two decades. And again, to people who more directly work um, with the embassy, which I think this is when news stories like this happens. It's when I learned how many people actually work for embassies. Even that alone is, is thousands of people. I've seen estimates of between 30,000 and up to 88 to 100,000 people who are in some way entitled uh, to be taken out of this country, whether they are family members of people who are eligible for um, special immigrant visas. But I wanted to ask you um, what's happening with these people now and what should have happened. Um, Can you explain who is in this group of the many thousands of people who are relying on the U.S. right now? Sure. So, you know, the U.S. has been there for 20 years, been there for a generation. And during that time, we enlisted the support of many locals. We made promises to many locals. Um, And those are folks who supported the U.S. military, who supported U.S. government, who supported NGOs, who supported private U.S. companies that went in there and built stuff. We have a multi-billion dollar embassy we built that the Taliban might take control of. Well, we had contractors we hired. Those contractors had to hire locals, had to Mm -hmm. hire translators. As far as the Taliban is concerned, those are all enemies. They've helped the enemy. They helped the infidels uh, occupy this country for 20 years. And there are ramifications for that. And so over the time, we have told all of them, well, don't worry. You know, if, if the worst thing happens, we'll take care of you. 
we'll take care of you. We have these visas. It turns out the visa process in the US uh, has a bunch of red tape and complex, I've heard more than a dozen steps. Um, based on the intelligence assessments that we saw, well, it's just Taliban, they, they might take a bull, but it won't be six months to a year from now. They thought they had time. And during that time, as anyone who's encountered the government from the DMV to the federal government, we have bureaucracy. There are wait times. And unfortunately for these folks, uh, sometimes it's a matter of hours, um, days that they have available, uh, time that typically the government is like, well, we work nine to five. We had to close down the embassy. It's going to take uh, apply online and, and we'll get back to you. So as far as estimates are concerned, I mean, there are estimates of, you know, a few thousand, right? Up to 20,000. Yeah. There's estimates up to 88,000. But keep in mind, those are just the people who work for the government, who work for major companies we're aware of. There are folks on the ground, like I was just, I just posted a story about the first female mayor of Afghanistan. She's stuck in a rural town where she was mayor. And she literally tells this British news source, I'm just waiting for the Taliban to come and kill me. Yeah. They tried to assassinate me. Okay. Is she on our list of special immigrant visas? I would hope so. But there are many people like her. And, and given the Taliban's viewpoint on the world and their philosophy when it comes to women and human rights, what about all the LGBT uh, or women or a whole variety of folks who felt comfortable in the new Afghanistan over the course of the last 20 years to be open about beliefs that the Taliban believes are the beliefs of the infidels? Are those people on the list too? And so that's the unfortunate situation is the numbers are in the hundreds of thousands, frankly, of people who don't feel safe and secure and could face revenge in this new Afghanistan. What type of danger are all of these people in that weren't able to get out? You could see those the footage from the airport, the desperation of people climbing on to moving aircraft. So you can tell that they are desperate to get out. What kind of danger are these people in? So that's the that's the big question that we don't know, because, you know, I, I, there's also, you know, reports from the ground in downtown Kabul today that everything is calm, that the Taliban guards are totally friendly. They're yeah. checking people's IDs. They're letting people move around. Um, guys, it's day one. And so uh, the Taliban is doing these interviews with Western media. They're calling it to Sky News and the BBC. And they're like, oh, the Taliban of the mid-90s when we were running the place, chopping people's hands off. Yeah. We're, we're a different Taliban now. Well, are you? Because fundamentally, your beliefs haven't changed. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb and say I get a bad vibe from the Taliban. I get a Generally bad vibe. Speaking, I do too. And guess what? The most powerful military in the history of the world from their perspective, just got defeated. They're on a high. So what, you know, the U.S., like, you know, I was seeing these statements from Republicans, from Nancy Pelosi, like, well, Taliban, you watch out. You don't mistreat your women. <laughs> well, they're going to say, what ramifications were there? Like, we just took you out. We now have some of the helicopters you gave the Afghan military. We have oh, yeah. fighter jets. We got a whole bunch of stuff. Who You're going to stop us now? So I think that's the challenging thing is like, be very careful when you see these quotes from the Taliban being like, well, no, we support women in school now. Well, yeah. actions speak louder than words. And so it remains to be seen. And I, unfortunately, Brian, I, I can't answer that question at this point because it's still too new. Yeah. Um, so let's just quickly talk about why we're in this moment. So we began withdrawing troops months ago with Biden's anticipated full departure set for August 31st. Um, so have these evacuations happened at the rate that they should have had over the past few months, um, knowing that this was like everyone seemed to know that this was a likely outcome? Like, how come this didn't move quicker and what what could have been done to make it go quicker? And was there a strategic reason to delay these evacuations or is this just a massive failure? Um, I think a lot of us, like I mentioned, were impacted by those images of the Afghans at the airport. Um, 
not all of them to happen to possess skills that benefited U.S. interests in the region for the last 20 years. So what humanitarian options do we have for them? I mean, a lot depends on whatever is happening behind the scenes. Uh, AP is reporting this morning that U.S. generals met face to face with um, with the Taliban which, by the way, is just remarkable given uh, the last 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and effectively, the Taliban controls the country of Afghanistan. The U.S. controls the Kabul International Airport. How long that is for is unclear. What the U.S. has promised the Taliban in order for this to happen is unclear. That stuff will all eventually leak out. To answer your question, Brian, ultimately, should this have happened earlier? Well, in retrospect, absolutely. What you're seeing is just a fundamental intelligence failure. And by the way, the intelligence community is already leaking out. Hey, we told Biden this might happen. Mm-hmm. You're going to see a whole bunch of leaks. Well, we wrote a memo on May blah, 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 mm-hmm. that said this would happen. You need to get out ASAP. So that all will unfold. We'll see that. I mean, it's it, re- it reminds me it comes full circle. The memo is written to Condoleezza Rice in the summer of 2001 saying terrorists going to attack New York. There is a chance. Well, where are they? I don't know. OK, well, the intelligence community puts out a lot of reports. Of a variety of uh, with a variety of views. So Biden might have just been looking at that and being like, I want out. I want out. I want out. Yeah. And so in retrospect, should visas have been expedited? Surely. Should we? There's there was a debate about moving a whole bunch of Afghans to the island of Guam, a yeah. U.S. territory, um, and then processing them there. The U.S. is like, we can't do that. And other people are like, you're America. This is your territory. Right. You can do whatever you want, America. Um, I mean, it's remarkable. The military just snapped their fingers and we now have 7000 troops coming within Afghanistan in the next 24 hours. That's triple what we had before July that kind of kept the country secure. Right. Now we're trying to get people into like Albania and Slovakia. It's like we could have just gone to Guam, y'all. Like, we, and I we, think we maybe still can, but we, we have a good amount of territory also here in the lower right. 48. Um, so, you know, it just it's remarkable to me. And, you know, I know that we have very smart people and we have the best logistics company in the world, which is the U.S. military. So the question is, ultimately, how do we process these folks? How do we secure these folks? You know, what sort of paperwork delays are we dealing with? But, yeah. you know, if he had to do it over again, I'm sure he yeah. would be changing a whole bunch of stuff. And I haven't looked into this yet. And I don't want to be I don't know if conspiratorial is the right way, but I feel like there have been drips and drabs even since this administration started where morale was still low in the State Department. The brain drain hadn't really like come back. I, I bet we're going to be seeing a lot of um, exchanges of blame of what <laughs> fell through the cracks. Well, or it, it reminds me of like when Obama comes in and stuff fell through, they're like, well, Bush screwed, you know, really messed things yeah. up and it's time to fix stuff. Trump comes in. He's like, well, the Obama administration. Biden comes in. He's like, oh, the border stuff. Let's Trump. Uh, yeah. Trump. And like, of course, they're going to like shift blame. But ultimately, what's remarkable about Biden is he ran saying the buck stops with me. Trump said, you know, yeah. nothing. Yeah. I'm to blame for nothing. I'm going to take responsibility for things. And then they're saying this weekend. Biden's like, well, if it wasn't for Trump's deal, Biden, you could have ripped up Trump's deal. You had you were the president of the United States. So I think there's going to be a lot of blame shifting. And we'll see politically, by the way, you know, the big question is like, well, what does this mean for midterms? What does it mean for reelection? Americans have short memories. If things stabilize in a, in a couple of weeks or months, and um, then maybe Americans don't care when they go to vote next year. Mm-hmm. Or if this continues to be an issue, they might care. One thing to keep in mind, we got out of Iraq in 2011. We went back in in 2014 because ISIS became a thing. Right. So we're going to have to monitor Afghanistan and it's you know likely to show up in our radar screen in the coming years. Yeah. 
We all dread the what should we have for dinner question. I mean, I know I do. I love a home-cooked meal, but I don't always have the time, energy, or groceries to make it happen. Being able to feast on a delicious meal without the long prep and cook times is what drew me to Home Chef over the other guys. Home Chef's meals are effortless, so I can spend less time trying to be Top Chef and more time watching it. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. Whether you prefer classic meal kits with pre-portioned ingredients and easy instructions, speedy recipes ready in less than 30 minutes, oven-ready kits with pre-chopped ingredients, or quick microwave meals that assemble in minutes, Home Chef has you covered for delicious meals without the hassle. Home Chef has over 30 options a week and serves a variety of dietary needs, so you never have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. For a limited time, Home Chef is offering our listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and of course, free shipping on your first box. Just go to homechef.com slash fever dream. That's homechef.com slash fever dream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard that right. Homechef.com slash fever dream must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing, up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. We've touched on this a little bit, but I saw a really alarming tweet this morning that made a lot of sense. That was like, you know, everybody is is raising the the alarm about women's rights. And somebody said, well, remember, the U.S. didn't didn't go to Afghanistan for women's rights. Like it is a nice side effect and the United States can can claim. But that was not that is never that was not the objective. And obviously, a huge concern here is for women and girls. Many fear reprisal attacks, sexual assault and rape and forced marriage to Taliban soldiers, which happened in the late 90s through 2000, when when women couldn't work or go to school, had to cover their faces, be accompanied by a man to go outside. And as we discussed at the top, this was 20 years ago. There are many people in that country who have never lived um in a world like this and have only seen since 2001 and the past 20 years have seen, as you mentioned, expansion of women's liberties, roles in society, everywhere, education, art, work. Currently, what I've heard is there are reports of women and girls just hiding in their homes because they don't know what's coming for them. They don't know. I mean, we talked a lot about evacuations, but it seems like what's complicating that now is that they can't get to the airport safely. We have the airport, but getting to the airport is posing a danger. 
As early as July, I heard Taliban reports, uh, reports that the Taliban was gaining ground in certain areas. There were reports of female bank employees being sent home and replaced by male relatives. I have heard some very dark reports of even worse things happening, which is why I wanted to ask you about reporting on this as well. But this, as you said, the Taliban says we're fine with women. They just have to follow Islamic rules, which I think they can implement those in a range of different ways, which brings me to a broader question, which is how do you interpret and act on anything the Taliban says right now? It's it's uh, that that it is very difficult. Right. Um, And you you look across kind of like the Islamic fundamentalist spectrum and see kind of what the rules generally are. Right. Like in Iran, the women have to keep their head covered, but uh, they're allowed to work Uh, in the Gaza Strip where Hamas runs things. Again, they're Islamic fundamentalist kind of allies of, of the Taliban. Uh, the women cover themselves even more than they do in, in Iran and have limited Hezbollah in Lebanon. So the Taliban, you know, we have to go by the world that they the country that they ran from 1996 to 2001. Um, how things unfold are unclear, whether the you know the reports you're noting about, um, you know, female bank employees being told, OK, your male relatives now have to replace you. Someone was uh, one of the Taliban folks was asked about that over the weekend. They're like, oh, well, that was someone who went rogue. That's okay. not what we do. <laughs> Okay, well, rogue is still rogue, right? It's a huge country. In many cases, the Taliban has taken back the country, but some of the cities they took back, they might have 10 soldiers left in them. That's how, you know, that's how easy it was for them. So, you know, managing the bureaucracy of that country. What do you think they're telling themselves? They're just like, are they just like, everybody act cool just for a bit, just act cool. Tell them we like the lady. Like, it's it's so eerie. It makes me feel so, so scared. Well, I mean, one of the things that people should remember is that when the Taliban last ran Afghanistan from 96 to 01, only three countries recognized the, their yeah. government. Pakistan, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, Dubai and, and Abu Dhabi. Um, those last two are probably unlikely. Pakistan will probably recognize them. Interestingly, two of the embassies not being evacuated are the Chinese and the Russian embassies. Um, the world has changed. Do they want to have relationships with the Taliban? So the Taliban, to your point, Amanda, is let's play it cool. Let's get some recognition. We got to like the head of the Taliban who's going to be named the new president, did a phone call with Trump last year. Mm-hmm. The president of the United mm-hmm. States talked to him, right? We helped get him out of prison from Pakistan to negotiate this peace agreement because we were so sick of this whole thing. So, you know, the Taliban wants to be a legitimate player on the international stage. Back in the mid 90s, no one talked to them. They had no relationship. We had full on sanctions on them, which is why they had to basically sell opium <clears throat> and drugs to keep their economy going, which they are continuing to do. And so ultimately, the, you know, the Taliban, you see in the interviews, play the long game. Eh, it might not happen next year, yeah. might not happen in 10 years, but it's going to happen in 20 years because we're going to wear out the West. You guys get frustrated. You move on. You see some loss of life and you move on to the next thing. And we're here and we play the long game. Oh, it's just completely chilling. And it was it was related to the fate of women and girls that I want to ask you my next question, which is like how Western journalists can be helpful in this moment, especially when it feels especially important because it's in a situation where people are flooding the airport and they're trying to get out. Like, here's an example. I saw some reports this morning, some big outlets confirmed them that there were potentially there were women being forced to marry some jihad members already. That was not confirmed. That's the type of thing that it's like, I don't want to blow to whatever extent we have influence. It's like if the media blows that up and that terrifies a country of women who then put themselves in more danger trying to escape, what do you view your responsibility and the responsibility of Western journalists right now? I mean, the the most important thing, as challenging as as it is, 
is to try to verify things. Like, for example, over the weekend, there were reports that they were doing public executions again in Kandahar yeah. in the stadium. Well, I dug around and some of those photos looked older. And I was like, if this happened, like no one that I trust who's worked for any major media outlets is reporting this. Yeah. And so I think it's important to, you know, if you see something, try to confirm it. Um, and that is the role of, of journalists, generally speaking. But there's a lot of fear out there, which is we're seeing reports of da-da-da. Well, okay, but who's reporting that? And, you know, there are folks on the ground in Afghanistan who are saying that the media, you know, reporting some of this stuff is leading more people to run to the airport, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So thereby creating more chaos and potentially people dying because of, you know, reporting. So the thing to say is, you know, the extent that, you know, there are folks on the ground who are willing to, uh, you know, that you trust, um, who know stuff um, is important. At the same time, when it comes to women, women and girls, like you want to make folks aware of what's right. going on. Like, for example, the, the store shop owner who painted over the images of the women uh, because you're not supposed to see women's faces. Um, upon further review, he did that in an anticipatory yeah. way that the Taliban would tell him to do that. Right. He's just trying to be like, oh, the Taliban's here. I'm doing this. He wasn't ordered to do that, at least not that we're aware of. And so that context is important that people are like, oh, we know what the Taliban's up to. Mm-hmm. Like time to go buy my burqa and whatever. Right. Now that now no one's saying that that order might not come through in the next day or week or month. But that's what we know. So context is important. Verifying is important. Uh, going off of one source is, you know, is uh, is dangerous if you can get multiple sources. And then most importantly, protecting people who might be under threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, th- those are the conversations when you're talking to somebody is, should you use their name? Maybe right. you should suggest to them that they don't use their name um, when they speak openly. Um, because, you know, again, there's the Taliban, there's mm-hmm. the people the Taliban left behind across the country. There's the like 10,000 prisoners they just let out of jail that are roaming the country now. Um, right. Oh, God. Uh, you know, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. there's those guys mm-hmm. and weapons are freely available. So these are Al Qaeda, you know, like the, one of the guys that the Taliban, when they took over the presidential palace, they were sitting in basically the Oval Office of uh, Afghanistan yesterday. Shook his hand. One of those guys is like, by the way, I spent eight years at Gitmo. Well, <laughs> you think he has an interest in doing anything to be supportive to America or whatever? He's like, no, I survived eight years in Gitmo and now mm-hmm. I'm here in the Oval Office. So um, I think that, you know, journalists, it's even more important that they follow their main rule, which is get it right. Don't get it first. Yeah. And it's journalists. Mm. And obviously a lot of people have big followings and will be sharing screenshots of things. And that's why I think it's so important, especially it's like just because somebody tweeted something, they might've fallen asleep when it went viral and they don't actually want it to be posted. But so just be really careful too, because our audience has been asking a lot, what do we do? Who's, whose voices do we share? And it's a little complicated right now. It's, I don't really know if the answer is to call the state department and your representatives. Maybe we shouldn't be jamming up their phone lines when people need visas. Right. No, no. I mean, even some senators and congressmen are like, they're like, here's my number on Twitter. If you're in Afghanistan and you're stuck, call the office. Um, as much as, you know, you want to call and be like, do something. Well, the next phone call is somebody who's stuck there who's exactly. giving you the logistics. Now, by the way, I wouldn't just restrict that rule to journalists. If you're an influencer, exactly. if you have a following of any size, whether it's 500 people or 5 million people, you wield a lot of strength. And this is something I noticed around the Israeli-Palestinian thing in May too, is like, don't just retweet and reshare. Look for the blue check marks. Look for people who like take this thing serious, you know, take reporting seriously and go to them 
even if they don't have the thing in the video that you're seeing everywhere, well, maybe that video um, is out of context. Maybe yeah, there's a reason they don't have it. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you kind of touched on this before, before the, the withdrawal happened, about 70% of U.S. voters were in agreement with this withdrawal. But do you think that this at all will come to define Biden's presidency and America's or, or even America's international reputation? Um, and are we stand are we at risk of losing, you know, that title as like a reliable ally who can take care and assist? Well, unfortunately, that that reputation uh, has suffered some damage True. Uh, before this. Um, yeah. You know, if you look back at the last four years, like, you know, the Trump administration saying we don't agree with NATO anymore and we're not going to support you and whatever. You could go back to Obama and when the Russians took Crimea from Ukraine. What do we do? The Ukraine's an ally of ours. Well, the Russians still sit there and occupy that. The Russians continue a force in Ukraine. So we could go back several presidents now. And that kind of reputation that America will be there for you has taken a hit. Now, that's not lost. And when we talk about impact here on our enemies, right? Does China think that we're going to defend Taiwan if they decide one day to show up in Taiwan? Do the Russians think that if they roll into Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia, which you know they would love to have back, that we're going to like do a full-fledged war there? Those are the you know general concerns that countries that have been given promises by the U.S. that we will back you up um, have yet another reason to be concerned about that. And so, you know, I think that... Um, Ultimately, you know, there's that. And on top of that, the irony here is that all Biden wanted to do was get us out of Afghanistan as quickly as humanly possible. He didn't want to be defined by it. Bush was, Obama was, Trump was to a certain extent. They couldn't get us out. He's like, I'm going to get us out. And the irony is he might now have the most significant Afghanistan uh, challenge to deal with by the one who got us out, by being the one who got us out. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time and your explanation. This was, um, it was, it was enlightening. It was edifying. I don't feel better, but I feel like I know more. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had more positive news. Come back to me next week. Hopefully we have good. some more hopeful headlines. Yes. We definitely will. We would love to have you back, but in the meantime, Mosh, where can people keep up with your analysis on this? Sure. So, um, right now the main place is my Instagram account at Moshe at M O S H E H, um, where I'm doing lives and interviews and, uh, trying to just keep up with the uh, massive amount of headlines coming from the region. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time until the end of democracy. I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Brian Russell Smith. <laughs> and this is the Betches Up podcast. Bye. The Betches Sub Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Sean Kilby. Editing by Jorge Morales-Pico. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails to suppod at Betches.com. Betches.